Old Testament lesson this morning is from Exodus 17, verses 8 to 16. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is My Banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. The word of the Lord. Let's now stand for the gospel reading. The Lord be with you. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew in the 12th chapter, beginning at the 22nd verse. Glory be to thee, O God. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan... He is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by, by Beelzebul, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. The Gospel of Christ. Praise Praise to thee, O Christ. Christ. As we're standing, please pray with me. Father, may, may we see in our days your ensuing conquest over evil and darkness. Bear witness to your victory through Jesus Christ, your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.
be seated. Yahweh Nisi is the name that Moses gave to that war memorial which commemorated Israel's first military victory. Yeah, now that means in Hebrew, Yahweh is my banner. A banner in this sense, it actually means a rallying signal used specially for military purposes. Now back then in combat, you'd make a signal by either uh, blowing a trumpet or you raise up and wave a flag or a banner. Now a, a military signal is likely the last thing Christians or we would associate with God. See, it's rarely ever conceived since we live in a time of relative peace. And the image doesn't just jive with our popular notions of God as a loving and gentle father. But God as a military signal, it made sense. It made sense to think of him as such to ancient Israel as they live in a world that was way more hostile and violent than it is today. The ancient communities had to, by necessity, arm and train themselves for combat, to defend themselves or to even launch an assault against others. Now, unless you're a refugee from war, it is hard for us to personalize what it is to be in an environment of continual conflict. When these days, even though war and conflict are still around, they're just news, they're video reels that are coming out of your screens. Yet, they are the backdrop to many of the stories that we read in the Bible and has shaped the language, the structure of worship and prayer for God's people. In any case, if the names of God should speak truth about who God is even for us today, what does it mean for us to consider God as a banner or more especially God as a military signal? Now let's imagine ourselves, God forbid, in a time of war in this city. Toronto is besieged from all direction. Just think of it. We go running, huddled downstairs in the parish hall, taking shelter from enemy artillery. It's not the safest to be down there, but it's the best we got. And then we're all feeling all palpably afraid, but more so for our kids as we cover them under our arms and bodies, as we hear the sound of gunfire explosions that you could hear nearby. But then there's this sudden moment of quiet outside. And then suddenly heavy footsteps coming into the church, descending the stairs, and then suddenly soldiers rush into the basement. Suddenly there's yelling everywhere. Kids begin to cry. But we start noticing that these soldiers were bearing the Canadian flag on their uniforms. The soldiers begin to calm us all down. They're assuring us that they're on our side. They tell us it's safe. That we can now go outside to the streets. So we sheepishly file out to King Street with our kids in hand. And as we come out to the street, we hear this deafening roar that seems to come from everywhere, all around us. Then overhead, we realize these are Hornet fighter planes of the Royal Canadian Air Force. They're lending air support and they're targeting enemy artillery positions. The sound, the sight of these hornets that bear the Canadian flag, they give us all this strange and foreboding sense of safety and hope that perhaps the tide of the war may be turning. We feel we're being covered. We feel we're being protected. 
It's showing to us that the Canadian military, they're pushing back the enemy forces. They're fighting for us. See that roar of the Canadian hornets? They serve as a military signal that boosts our morale in a strange way. Our sense of safety, our sense of assurance for our own lives, for the lives of our kids. That all feels like a banner over us, shielding us, protecting over us. Now that feeling may be getting close to how Israel may have felt as they saw Moses up on that hill, bearing with his hands the same staff that brought the plagues against Egypt, the same staff that split the Red Sea in two, the same staff that made the barren rock spill out water just before this battle with Amalek. Now let's set the stage for our Exodus reading. See, before the battle, Israel was just tested again by God as they encamped in Rephidim. Uh, Rephidim means place of rest. The people again complained of having no water to drink, so God instructed Moses, gather the elders, meet him on a rock right by Horeb. Now this becomes a court trial scene, and God stood on the rock as though in judgment for then Moses to strike with his staff. Upon doing so, living water gushes out and the people are saved. Now, this is where our story follows. As the people of Israel remained encamped in this place of rest, this Rephidim, the people of Amalek, this is a nomadic tribe from the line of Esau, they came against the people. Now, we don't know why Amalek attacked. It's speculated they were going after this newfound water source coming out of the rock in Rephidim. But that's not really important because the point is that Amalek was the unprovoked aggressor. The one who chose the course of violence, who set their face against Israel without cause. Amalek becomes one of these typological figures in the Bible to represent brute antagonism against the people of God. See, Amalek lines up after Egypt, before Assyria, before Babylon, before Rome, they all represent, you could say, the anti-kingdom, the powers that wage war against God and his subjects on earth. See, although Israel at this point had been completely rescued from Egypt, redeemed and recovering in Rephidim, this place of rest, they still face adversaries along the way to the promised land. As it were, the shadow of Egypt still looming over them, chasing them, the spirit of Pharaoh with his chariots after them, harassing them all the way. Even in this place of rest, there will be struggle. In the midst of life, we are in death. This is the recurring story of God's people in this world, rescued yet restless in the progress of time until Jesus comes again. Back to our story. Moses now instructs Joshua, who here appears for the first time in the Bible, to gather some fighting men to the front lines as he sets out to the hilltop with his older brother Aaron and another guy named Hur. These three guys, they set up to the hill at the top overlooking the battlefield. And they will be up there for as long as the sun is in the sky. So Moses takes on this posture of prayer, both arms holding up his staff, being depicted as a military general and a priest. 
Now, holding up his arms for several, several hours wore out his shoulders. So Aaron and Hur got Moses to sit down as they spotted him until sunset. Now it's never explained how the height of Moses' arms with the staff corresponded with Israel's winning or losing. But the pattern throughout the book of Exodus is that the power of God was expressly mediated in and through the staff. It's not because the staff is magical, but it was according to Moses' faith and his following through as per divine instruction that things happened exactly as divine instruction said as Moses performed them. That was it. And it had gotten to this point in the life of Israel during Israel's first military battle that Moses took his own initiative for the first time as recorded here. He stepped out with his own faith, without any clear direction or instruction from God. Moses just leapt into action. He delegated Moses as he said, I'm going to go up on the hill. It seems that Moses now here knew enough of God and trusted that God's power will come through the staff yet again, regardless of any instructions from God. If he would again pray, if he would again intercede for Israel with the staff, as he had done many times already, things will happen. Especially this time when the people are again in grave danger, like last time at the Red Sea. Moses steps in with his faith, with the staff, on behalf of the people. The battle was waged. Joshua at the front lines, Moses giving air support. The victory was won. Afterwards, God finally chimes in for the first time in this story. He says, write this on a scroll as a memorial in Joshua's hearing that I will destroy Amalek from the face of the earth. The Hebrew word harem, meaning a holy ban, was now placed on Amalek by God, marking them as a people devoted for utter destruction because of their unprovoked aggression against Israel. And this holy ban will be carried out by by Joshua after Moses. It will be all the way to the days of the Judean kings hundreds of years later until Amalek was finally wiped out by King Hezekiah. Now this notion of just war and holy war and the relationship with God, church, and warfare, that's a hotly debated topic even today. But how the early church fathers reckoned with Israel's military history was by way of typology. See, I mentioned earlier that Amalek, alongside the line of pagan oppressors of Israel, they they represented the anti-kingdom, the powers of brute antagonism against God in his kingdom. Just as we today in modern society would reckon the Nazi regime as a placeholder, typological of all sorts of militant ideological fascism that are still present danger to our democratic societies. Now the New Testament is clear that our present warfare is not against people, not against nations, governments, or communities. The enemy of the church cannot be seen or touched, so cannot be fought against conventionally primary struggle of Christians is spiritual. In the spirit of Amalek, Amalek means the people who licks up 
This spirit persists in its purest form in the rule and will of a personal force of evil called the devil. Now, the devil and his legions are still licking up what is good and beautiful in this world by their lying, their corrupting and poisoning our lives and relationships. And these spiritual beings, they fly their banner across the airspace like they're this cosmic cloud of locusts. They devour the goodness and light of creation. They build their nests into every crevice of this world. They dig up pits. They dig up potholes. They erect these memorials and altars of distrust and murder and unforgiveness in our hearts on an individual level, but also in systems and cultures and enterprises on an institutional level. These beings, their military strategy is ancient, extensive, effective, and efficient. This is the dark shadow of Pharaoh and his chariots ongoing into history. This is the shadow of anti-kingdom still looming over our heads. And that shadow still comes into our very hearts too. But as we've read in the gospel, there's someone who is shooing the darkness away. They're like high beams on a country road at night. Jesus said, It is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons. So then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now, Jesus here is peeling away the curtains to the spiritual world, implying that he is binding the strong man, that is the devil, in order that he may loot his house. Now, now that's an aggressive image, not not so much out of retaliation or even out of self-defense. Because you'd think a more fitting image would be for Jesus as a parable would describe this as a rescue operation going into enemy territory, a taking back of what the devil had stolen, a liberation of a house that is held hostage. No, but Jesus here is actually portraying himself as an aggressor, a plunderer, a pillager of the house of the devil. Now around the 11th century AD, there were these icons of Jesus that depict him holding a banner, more specifically, the oriflamme. That's a battle standard that's usually colored uh, blood red or pure white. And Jesus is portraying holding the oriflamme as he besieges hell. He's now emptying it of the dead that were imprisoned in its belly. And often these icons also depict the devil under the feet of Jesus, trampled and defeated. Now that's a very violent and aggressive image. Now, one Eastern Orthodox art scholar remarks, quote, The oriflamme is less about victory and more about mobilization for an assault. It's a call for the warriors to come together. The oriflamme was not a military insignia, but more a sacred sign that inspired. It was displayed only if the king was the commander of the expedition. Only the king could display the oriflamme into the rest It was the indication that the king was himself fighting in the war, and he was in command, leading the charge. Jesus meant to portray himself as, yes, the aggressor, 
For elsewhere, he described to Simon Peter that as the church is being built on the rock, what did he say? The gates of hell cannot withstand it. Cannot withstand the church. Meaning the church is actually on the offensive. That the gates of hell and the anti-kingdom establishment is actually on the defensive. The kingdom of God is the mobilizing of his people against the anti-kingdom of this world, who is led personally by Jesus Christ, who is the king. Now let me be clear, this is not a call to arms. Not even a call to start or join a movement as a counter-revolutionary against the prevailing culture. Rather, the question for us is this, how, how did Jesus actually mobilize his followers? for this ongoing assault against the anti-kingdom. How are we today, right now, being mobilized, as it were? See, in these medieval icons, the oriflamme is always in the shape of a cross. It's always in the shape of a cross. This banner of God's kingdom is the cross. How Jesus personally and decisively won the war was for his own arms, to be raised up and fastened against the staff of torture, the banner of imperial power, the Roman cross. And his arms were held up long enough for him to die, killing with him all the dirty works of the devil. So then we must look up to the hill of Calvary. And as we see the cross lifted high up like an oriflamme, like a banner, that is our signal, the cross. The cross is our banner. How does the cross mobilize us? We're mobilized specifically to die alongside Jesus, to die to our self-interests, to die to our inclinations, to die to the works of the devil, to die to the conventions and wisdom and temptations of the anti-kingdom. And if we should die to all of these, all there is left is life, life that we can give away, life for the world, life for those who are still harassed and held hostage by the anti-kingdom. As Jesus continues his assault against hell, we meet him at the gates. We can, like Moses, step out in faith, in urgent response to conflict, and we do so by holding up our arms in prayer. Or you can do so by kneeling down as well, even on your bedsides as you pray for your family, pray for your kids, pray for the city. We hold up our arms in prayer, interceding on behalf of those like Joshua, who is out there in the front lines. He's called to be there with others, fighting people, directly confronting injustice, crimes, abuse, human trafficking, poverty. Or, like Aaron and her, you can be called elsewhere to lend support, spotting others. You hold up those who are faint, spotting those who could no longer lift themselves up from the ground. These are different specific ways each of you are called to fight in the assault of the anti-kingdom. God has set his banner over this world. That banner is the cross of Jesus, the King. The war he has won, but battles rage on until he should come again. This is the life of faith. 
as we're progressing to the promised land. Though you are in rest, you are rescued. But we are still restless because of the anti-kingdom in this land. Let's join him then, where he calls his church to besiege the gates of hell. Lay waste to the anti-kingdom, to the end that all creation may remember that the Lord has been our banner at last, to the glory of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.